Glad to see everybody. It's been a while. <laughs> um, yeah, so today, uh, today we're going to talk about a, uh, um, not necessarily a story, but a really extraordinary woman uh, in the Bible um, from a little town outside Jerusalem. Who it's kind of interesting. On uh, two separate occasions, she was commended directly by Jesus, you know, for what it, for really getting what it meant to love God, which is pretty cool. Um, you know, you think most of the time he was telling the disciples, uh, you know, about their potential, in spite of kind of <laughs> what they were doing, you know, throughout their time with Jesus. Um, and just because my store worker asked a couple weeks ago, is this going to be about a Lent subject? We made, made sure you're going to start off with a good amount of repentance to start. So. <laughs> but no. Um, anyways, really love Drew's talk on repentance, which I think was, was that the last time we were here? Yeah. Uh, yeah, a long time ago. Um, that was really wonderful. But um, So... This lady that, uh, that Jesus commended for uh, getting what it meant to love, to love God, Jesus was commending her for really understanding the, uh, his first commandment. Um, in Matthew 22, 36, um, Jesus is you know, hanging out with some other uh, um, Pharisees and people who really you know, understand the, the law and the Torah and the, the, all the commandments and uh, he said, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So, over... Um, uh, Christmas, uh, right before New Year's, we uh, Karen and I went to a conference in Kansas City, put on by the International House of Prayer, and um, it's kind of interesting. They've been doing this conference for about 20 years. Uh, they've been doing 24/7 uh, prayer for 20 years there, uh, which is pretty cool. Like not not a minute of the day for the past 20 years there hasn't been prayer uh, in the prayer room uh, in Kansas City. And um, the, the head um, pastor there is Mike Bickle. So Mike Bickle's up on stage along with a good friend of his, Francis Chan, who, uh, any of you guys know Francis Chan? He wrote a book, Crazy Love. He's a great speaker, you know, really, um, um, really cool guy. And he said, after hearing Mike Bickle talk about this subject, this, uh, uh, this woman and um, her obedience to uh, this first commandment, he was scheduled to go talk after Mike, at, not at this conference we were at, but they were kind of retelling the story of, of, of this previous time. He said, in, in all the years of, of, of them two knowing each other, you know, he had never heard him speak. This is the first time that Francis Chan heard Mike Bickle speak. He was coming on after him. And uh, he, he got up there to speak, and he said, you know, to this crowd of probably thousands of people, hey guys, 
I'm not qualified to speak to you today. And at a big evangelical conference, you know, he said, you know, what probably went through a lot of people's heads, you know, was he having an affair? Was he stealing from the church? You know, what sin was he in that he wasn't qualified to speak to the people in front of him? And he said, I do not love the Lord my God with all my heart right now. I am not keeping the first commandment. And because of that, I'm not qualified to speak to you today. And Mike said that Francis fell on the ground weeping and ripped his shirt in repentance. So just want to um, set expectations uh, for re- your response today <laughs> when I talk about this subject. But <laughs> now, so what does it mean to repent for not loving God, you know, completely? Um, so um, I can talk about a, a Greek word, and I didn't go to seminary, and uh, I, I didn't um, actually come up with this Greek word. It came from somebody else who had been to seminary, knows about these things. But, uh, you know, I've done a little bit of my own research on it. But the, uh, the, the Greek word for repentance used in the New Testament is metanoia. And um, the idea of penitence associated, associated with repentance really kind of comes from a lacking translation of that word. See, metanoia really means to have a beyond meta-mind, noia. And the word more closely resembles convert or have a complete change of heart. So metanoia isn't just about saying you're sorry and feeling bad about it, but metanoia is a complete change of trajectory, sometimes painful, sometimes joyful, that takes you into a new way of life, into a new way of living, surpassing your old way of thinking. So surpassing you know, your current mind. You know, God talks about, you know, my ways are, uh, are higher than your ways, you know. That's um, like this word. And in the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, there's two words commonly used, uh, translated as repent. And those are naham and shub, S-H-U-W-B, is how we write it in English, which is, you know, they don't use our same letters, but that's, that's, how, that's how we'd say it. But the, the word should literally means to return. And while this isn't specifically outlined or, or exposited in Scripture, I've, I've had an impression in preparing for this subject that true repentance, specifically in, um, um, in this case, is a return to our true created identity in line with the will of the Creator. So we were created in God's love and to love Him in return. So that's really the essence of of who we are. And so repentance on the subject of loving God isn't about doing more. And it's not about feeling bad or guilty about that, but rather surrendering. Just letting go, and uh, and really sitting in that love, the love which breathed us into creation. You see, Jesus told us to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. We can't love our neighbors 
without understanding how to love ourselves. And we can't love ourselves without getting a sense of God's great love for us. So the message of, of Jesus wasn't to just, just to love our neighbors and do good things. You know, but I don't want you to feel bad or guilty or shameful if you don't feel like you aren't loving God with your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Rather, what I want for us is to seek out God's love and to learn who we are in the process of that. So in order to know how to love God, we need to understand God's love for us. And throughout the Bible, you know, there's a... Um, um, the first person of the Trinity, the transcendent, uncreated God, that part of the Trinity is, is often referred to as Father. You know? And um, for some of us, we can really you know, relate to having a loving Father. You know? and, um, and that's wonderful. And if that's a good imagery for you, you know, hang on to that. And then there's a, you know, some folks who have a hard time with that imagery. And so I wanted to explore just another facet of God, uh, which is God as creator, right? This is the same, the same person of the Trinity. Um, because, you know, no matter how good our father was or was not, you know, God is 100% good. God is good all the time. God doesn't cause bad things to happen, you know. Um, God can allow bad things to happen or let God, bad things to happen, but God doesn't cause the sickness and the pain and the things that we feel in this world that I think sometimes we can get angry at God for, you know, for our circumstances and things like that. Those aren't, those aren't from, from God. God is 100% good. And God intended his creation to be good, all the way good. And throughout Scripture, um, you know, we're referred to, um, it refers to humans as uh, these created vessels, jars of clay, you know, created from the dust of the earth. Uh, into something beautiful, and vessels uh, for the Holy Spirit. You know, when I talked about communion, I talked about, you know, we are a, a, a tabernacle um, uh, for God to dwell within. You know, in other places, that imagery is a, is a vessel. And um, I was really excited to see some new art in here today, uh, the tree being finished, um, which is a, a transformed <laughs> to say the least. Um, I, I, I did also, um, I was thinking, you know, uh, this pottery that, that Tony Hyden had done that had, had been all around, which was so beautiful. I was, I was really wanting to kind of talk about that. And I, I just knew that the Sunday I would come in to talk <laughs> about that, it would all be gone. But there's some other really beautiful things in here. And so... Um, you know, it's, it's really interesting to think of um, the process of creation and art, right? Um, we appreciate uh, 
what we appreciate in art, even more than the beauty of the object, is the reflection of the person who created it. You know, um, you know, there's all the kind of Renaissance masters' paintings and stuff like that, worth worth millions of dollars. Some of it because they're just old. Some of it because it's beautiful. But you can buy replicas of those paintings. You know, if you go to if you go to Italy and and you know where they have one of these famous paintings, there's all these replicas of that. And you can hang that in your house, and it looks just like it. It could be a print. It could be somebody else who's painted that same thing, you know. But we ascribe the most value to the original piece of work. And why is that? You know, we can look at it and kind of get the same thing out of that. But we know in that original piece of work, there was this process that went into it, you know. Um, it's more than just seeing the strokes on the canvas, you know. The person who created the art knows what's beneath those strokes. They know what maybe they painted over or the colors they mixed to get uh, to what we see. They know the pencil sketch that they made on the canvas before they laid the paint down, the plan that they had for that. And even before they bought the canvas and made the sketch, they had this idea. Um, you know, artists love their created work before it even becomes a piece of art that we get to see, you know, even before the process starts. Um, there's, a, uh, there's another uh, uh, artist uh, uh, who's here um, with Imagine Art, and uh, some of his work is, uh, one of his trucks is in the front um, area. You've probably seen him. He kind of makes these cars and trucks and things like that that are kind of, um, you know, really earthy. And sometimes you may or may not appreciate them as, as art or what they are, but when, if you knew him, if you knew the creator of that piece of art, you would understand it more. You see, he's um, deaf and mostly blind, can see through a pinhole, and has autism, and communicates with uh, tapping sign language, sign language touch, and he makes, he's really prolific with the amount of, of art he makes, which is pretty amazing. Um, and when you get to know that, know that even just that aspect about him, you appreciate that art a lot better. If you met him and saw him and saw his joy, you would appreciate the art even more. Um, and I brought a piece of art today that's really special to me. See, this was a cup that my grandfather made. So my grandfather, uh, when he was 69 years old, went back to college uh, to finish his degree that was interrupted by World War II. And uh, he needed an art elective. You know? <laughs> still, <laughs> still have to do those things, you know? Um, and he took a pottery class and became uh, really prolific 
and his making of pottery. My dad has a whole table of it at home. We kept a few, uh, few pieces that, uh, that we really loved. Um, this is a pretty plain little cup. It was made by somebody who just learned how to do pottery. It's not the most skillfully made, but it has impressions from his fingers or the tools he used. It has his signature with a little cowboy inscribed in the bottom. Little things that I would love more than anybody else because I love my grandfather. And you see, I can appreciate this creation so much more because of my love for him. And I think it's that way with the world. You know, how much can we love our neighbors if we don't know their creator? How much can we love our neighbors if we don't love their creator with all our heart and soul and mind? You see, anybody can own a cup and know how to take care of a cup. No, they shouldn't drop it or wash it after they use it or, you know, if it's a artful cup to display it or something like that. Anybody can know those things. We know, you know, what our neighbors need a little bit, you know, but I think we get to a deeper, you know, love when we understand their creator. So in the New Testament, there's uh, four words uh, that are used for love. Um, again, this is uh, something that I, I borrowed as well, because I'm getting back into Greek here. But there's uh, eros, phileo, sorge, and agape. Eros being, um, you know, it's the root of erotic. This is romantic love. This is, uh, you know... It's the most fleeting type of love, but it's not a bad type of love, right? It is a, it is a, a love for, you know, something beautiful, you know. Um, it is a, um, exciting love. And then there's phileo. Phileo is a, a brotherly love, right? And so this is how we love one another, you know, it's kind of interesting, you know, in our restore group this week, um, Austin told Caitlin, I, I love you. And this is, this is a phileo love, right? This is a, uh, a love that we, you know, just love other humankind with and that we should probably love more <laughs> of humankind with uh, brotherly love. Um, and then there's sorge. Sorge is a um, love that has a commitment attached to it. And this is the type of love usually described in a marriage or the way a parent loves a child, you know. Um, so whether that commitment or that vow was said or implied, there is something connecting those people together so that even in the hard times, it's a really strong love that binds. And then there's agape. Agape being unconditional love. 
This is a love that passes all of our understanding of love. And it's, it's a love that I think in all these other types of love we try to point to, right? Um, but I don't know if we're capable as humans of really being able to have agape. I think we have eros and phileo and sorge, right? Agape is God's love for us, right? So whenever they're describing God's love, they use the word agape. Um, we're going to talk a little bit more about that as I go. Um, so I wanted to read 1 Corinthians 13, which we've heard a lot of times, uh, but 1 Corinthians 13 um, when they use the word for love, sometimes translated as charity, the word they use in the Greek is agape. And so any time that the word um, um, agape comes up in the scripture, I'm going to say God's love. Okay? If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not God's love, I, be, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have the faith so as to remove mountains but have not God's love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I own, and if I hand over my body so that I might boast, but have not God's love, I gain nothing. God's love is patient. God's love is kind. It does not envy. It does not brag. It is not puffed up. It does not behave inappropriately. It does not seek its own way. It is not provoked. It keeps no account of wrongs. It does not rejoice over injustice, but rejoices in truth. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. God's love never fails. So the first time I heard this, read this way, it really hit me because this isn't an instruction list. This isn't a list for us to live up to. I mean, and hopefully in some way we, we are a reflection of this, but it's something for us to sit in and soak in, to really understand that God's love for us is all these things. It doesn't keep an account of wrongs, it endures all things and it never fails. In Isaiah 62, God gives a new name to his people. And the name is Hepzibah. Hepzibah means the Lord delights in you. And so I just want to say that over you guys. The Lord delights in you. You are God's people. But there are also a lot more of God's people. You see, I talked about God as creator. There is no one in this world who is outside of God's creation or God's love. Everyone on earth is a person of God. They may not know it. They may not believe it. But their created identity was to be a vessel for God, for God's love. God knows you individually, intimately, 
and infinitely. So God loves you individually. God knows you uniquely from everyone else. And God, you know, experiences you in an individual way. Uh, And this is really awesome when we kind of realize this. You know, sometimes, you know, the the little moments where we see God in our life, uh, a lot of times we know they're from him because we know no one else could have known that about us, right? Um, But also sometimes we take those experiences that are individual experiences and we kind of put them on other people and we say, I experienced God this way and so you should too. Uh, Or this is how God works because this is how I have experienced God. And sometimes this happens on a macro level, you know. It can lead to kind of misunderstanding or hurt, or if you didn't experience God that way, that wasn't really God, or things like that. But be assured that God knows you as a person, separate from every other person. And all seven billion people in the world and all the billions of people before us, God knew each of them individually. See, God is a God of abundance, the creator of the billions of galaxies and this world and everybody on it. And amazingly, he knows all of us individually. And God knows us intimately. God understands exactly who we are now. He understands who we were created to be. See, he understands that artwork, that plan for us before it was put down on paper. You know, um, God knows, you know, our skills, our strengths, our weaknesses, and God gives us good gifts. Um, A couple stories about kind of the intimacy of God's love, um, which I think ties in with the individuality, too. You know, we had a friend who um, was kind of in a rough time in her life, and, and so she she moved out of town, she moved away, and uh, went to, you know, just really sit with God for a while. And she was kind of asking, you know, God, what do you, what do you want from me? And the church had had, um, she felt like the church had had a lot of focus primarily on her sexuality as, as, the, as a main thing that she needed to kind of work on, or or that was her primary identity in God, or separate from God. But she sat with God, and God told her, quit smoking. (laughs) And she obeyed. But it was also this kind of touch of love from God, because she knew that God saw her, God loved her, And her obedience, you know, kind of led to more sitting with God and for deeper healing and and deeper trust in what the Lord had for her. There was one time um, after after I got to preach the last time about communion, you know, I was thinking about the liturgy and being a living sacrifice to God. And and what does that mean? And so I was sitting there uh, contemplating this subject, and thinking, man, what 
what do I need to do to, what should I do to be a living sacrifice to God? What does that mean? Should I give more money? Should I volunteer more? Should I do this or that? And all these things that I thought were big sacrifices or that I really should do. And God spoke to me probably more clearly than I've ever kind of heard God in my life. Not an audible sound, but, but a phrase. And I won't repeat it here because it was for me. It was an intimate and an individual word. But the word was a hundred times the sacrifice that any of the sacrifices I thought about. But it was so intimate. It was so perfectly a word for me. I didn't even count it as sacrifice. You see, it was what I was what I desired. It was got what God had made me for. And God has those words for you too because God knows you. And God loves us infinitely. See, God loved us first. I've you know, kind of talked about this for a while, but you know, God loved us before we existed. God loved us before creation, the scriptures say. God's love is unconditional. It is without end. There's nothing that we can do to separate ourselves from God's love. No sin, no denial, no running from God can separate us from God's love. God's love is unending and eternal. And so I want to read a uh, passage about that. I'm not going to talk about this passage, but just read it, because I think it... it, uh, illustrates it beautifully. It's from 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if We love one another. God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If everyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made in perfect love. We love because he loved us first. Whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister, is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God 
must also love their brother and sister. So I promised I was going to tell a story about somebody today, and I haven't got there yet. So I'll, uh, I'll move it along and introduce this, uh, this young woman. So uh, the woman we're talking about, her name is Mary. There's several Marys in the Bible. This one happened to live in Bethany, and so she's often called Mary of Bethany. Early on in the, in the um, they thought she, her and Mary Magdalene may have been the same person. Seems like that's been, they've kind of separated those two individuals over time. And I looked it up. Those are very different places, so it's kind of interesting. I was confused in Scripture, but... Anyways, uh, Mary of Bethany was a, a young woman living with her siblings. Her siblings were Mar- Martha and Lazarus, two really easy-to-say words. Um, so, and they lived in Martha's house. Uh, so what likely happened was uh, their parents had passed and had uh, left the house to Martha as her inheritance. Um, and so these were kind of, you know, adult children unmarried, uh, you know, living there together. Bethany is about two miles from Jerusalem. Jesus often stopped there on his way in and out of Jerusalem. And he was good friends with, you know, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Um, A lot of times this group of siblings is described as like Jesus's restore group. Like, you know, the, the, the disciples were people that he kind of did his ministry with and did his work, his put his 40 hours in with and then some. But, uh, but when he went to Martha's house, he was, uh, these, were, these were his friends, and it said he loved them. Um, the first time we hear about uh, Mary of Bethany is in Luke 10, 38 through 42, um, as she's at the feet of Jesus. And so if you see Mary in art, she's often pictured at the feet of Jesus. Um, and so I'm going to read uh, Luke 10, 38 through 42. Uh, now, while they were traveling, Yeshua entered a certain village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. She had a sister called Miriam, or Mary, who was seated at the master's feet, listening to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, so she approached Yeshua and said, Master, doesn't it concern you that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. But answering her, the Lord said, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and bothered about many things, but only one thing is necessary, for Miriam has chosen the good part, which will not be taken away from her. This is a really interesting story. You know, and, and Martha wasn't doing anything bad. There, you know, Jesus tended to travel with an entourage, right? And he came to this house, and uh, Martha was really concerned about serving all the finger sandwiches that needed to be served. But she was serving her guests. She was doing a good thing. But in her busyness, she was missing the Son of God in her own house, in her presence right there. And Jesus says, Mary chose the one thing that mattered, loving the word of God, sitting at the feet of Jesus and just soaking up the word of God. And it's kind of interesting because in art, like I said, she's usually pictured at the feet of Jesus with with a book, with the Bible. 
Um, of course, she had the living Bible there. She wasn't reading <laughs> a book. She was actually cherishing God's word from his mouth. Um, later on, when uh, their brother Lazarus died uh, and Jesus came after he had been dead four days, Martha, again, rushed out. And even in her faith, scolded Jesus, you know, about what you should have been here earlier, you know. Um, It talked about Jesus waiting, in fact, to go to Bethany when he heard that Lazarus was sick. You You know, God didn't make Lazarus die, right? God didn't do that, but... Um, Jesus knew that um, in some way he would be able to use this uh, for his glory. So um, Martha, Martha kind of rushed out and was upset with Jesus. You know, if you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. And uh, But Mary sat inside and waited and waited until uh, Jesus asked for Mary to come out he asked Martha to go tell Mary the teacher is here and waiting for you and so she ran out and Mary fell at the feet of Jesus and wept and she also had the same thing to say that Martha said You should have been here earlier. But she was vulnerable with the Lord. And after that, we get what's known as the shortest sentence in the Bible, Jesus wept. God felt that emotion with her in her vulnerability. And so, the next time we see Mary is um, really in this this week uh, leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus. You know, this is today's Palm Sunday. Jesus enters Jerusalem, and he's in Jerusalem for a bit of time, and then and then kind of makes a trip out of town, and goes and sees his friends in, in Bethany for what he knows will be the last time. And so we're going to read from Mark 14 about that time. It was now two days before Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. The leading priests and the teachers of religious law were still looking for an opportunity to capture Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the Passover celebration, they agreed, or the people may riot. Meanwhile, Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon, a man who had previously had leprosy. While he was eating, a woman came in with a beautiful alabaster jar of expensive perfume made from essence of nard. She broke open the jar and poured the perfume over his head. Some of those at the table were indignant. Why waste such expensive perfume, they asked. It could have been sold for a year's wages and the money given to the poor. So they scolded her harshly. Mary gets scolded a lot by her people around her. (laughs) 
But Jesus replied, leave her alone. Why criticize her for doing such a good thing to me? You will always have the poor among you, and you can help them whenever you want to, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could and has anointed my body for burial ahead of time. I tell you the truth, wherever the good news is preached throughout the world, this woman's deeds will be remembered and discussed. This is a this is a cool story. So, um, if for nothing else, at the end of it, Jesus has a second prophecy about Mary. See, he prophesied earlier that her um, her love for him wouldn't fail, even though uh, the enemy would try to take it away. Um, and here, he says that this good news this this good deed will be preached wherever wherever the good news is preached throughout the world. Folks in Africa, Indonesia, wherever, they know Mary of Bethany because of, of what she did. So what what did she do? What was this what was this? Why you know why why break, break this flask of perfume over the head of Jesus? So this flask of oil was really expensive. They said in, in John 12, it says it was uh, 300 denarii, which is a, a year's wage, basically. So in Austin, Texas in 2019, that would be about you know, $55,000. would kind of be the, the average price of this. This was likely her inheritance. So Martha got the house. Mary got this, um, this flask of of oil and perfume. This would have probably been her dowry for, um, for her to get married with. Um, Jesus was also about to be crucified and buried. And in communion, I talked about uh, this scene because uh, in communion, we take... Um, the bread and the uh, the bread offering um, that was made in the temple, uh, they always put uh, oil and then fragrance, frankincense on the bread as it's burned, uh, as the grain offering is burned uh, to God. And so she was anointing uh, the body of Christ, you know, God's body on earth, you know, to be a, a, a pleasant aroma. To the Lord, she was the only one who really understood what was about to happen here. You see, the disciples were also in this house, bickering about their place. Who is going to be to the left hand and to the right hand of Jesus once he goes up to heaven? But she understood that he was going to the cross. And in John twelve, it talks about Mary wiping the oil from Jesus' feet with her hair and the whole house being filled with this aroma. You can imagine, I'm not sure how large this flask was or how powerful the aroma was, but if it's worth $55,000 worth of perfume, it's a whole heck of a lot. If you've ever spilled a little bit of perfume, um, you know that it's pervasive. And she would have carried this fragrance with her in the days following. 
And you see, when Jesus went to the cross and all the disciples denied him and fled out of fear, it was the women who held vigil at the cross. And this aroma, this fragrance would have been unmistakable. There was no denying that she was in the presence of the Lord, for the aroma was with her. In 2 Corinthians 2, it says, For we are the aroma of Messiah to God, among those who are being saved and those who are perishing, to the one an aroma from death to death, to the other an aroma from life to life. Who is competent for these things? For we are not like many, peddling the word of God. Rather, in Messiah, we speak in the sight of God with sincerity as persons sent from God. Mary's life of love, you know, prepared her for this moment to pour out her love for God. This wasn't a hasty decision. It may have seemed like it to people around. But it was who she was created to be. Her obedience to loving God, to loving Jesus throughout uh, her life, um, prepared her for this call in this time when she could answer in such an extravagant way that would seem like such a sacrifice to everyone else, but to her, she counted it as not. Because she understood God's love for her and her rightful response. So as we go through our weeks and we contemplate this story, this amazing story of pouring out love for our Creator, I want us to be still, to sit with the Lord, listen for his voice, stop doing for a bit, take the rest of Lent to be contemplative because the kingdom of heaven is at hand, the Lord is sitting with us in our house. Consider taking a whole day of rest. You know, God taught about the, the Sabbath and, and gave that as a gift, a time when we can sit with God and, and be free from the, distract, the, the distractions of our world. Pray with God. Ask God about your identity and your call. God, who am I in your eyes? What do you want from me next? Wait on the answer. Don't ask him to send you an email because you're too busy. He will answer. And then go into the world confident in your identity, in your gifts, and in your calling. Waste your life on the Lord.
Love your neighbor because lovers outwork the workers.